Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right, 2 Samuel 11. Of course, we, we, we took a break from the life of David uh, for about five weeks to get ready for our anniversary service and our Who's Your One uh, program. And so today we're going to be jumping right back into David, but I kind of want to remind you of where we left off with David. Uh, last uh, we saw his treatment of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, of course, was a son of Jonathan. Uh, and after Jonathan and, and Saul were killed in battle, uh, David uh, ended up coming into power and taking the throne. And this time, uh, typically, when you had a new king come into power or a new family come into power, the new king would have everyone in the old family killed to protect his throne so that someone, some third cousin twice removed wouldn't rise up with an army and conquer you if you got to be less popular. But David didn't do that. David loved Jonathan. David loved Saul. Of course, Saul didn't love David very much, but David loved Jonathan. David loved Saul. He wanted to honor Saul. He wanted to honor uh, Jonathan. And so he, he went to his, his, some of his, uh, his, his advisors and said, hey, is there anyone left in Jonathan or Saul's family that I can honor? And they came up with this guy, Mephibosheth, who was a cripple. He was dropped as a baby when they were fleeing the, the, the palace, and so he's, he's crippled. He lives in Lodibar, which is a, an unwanted kind of desolate area of Israel. He's, he's crippled, and in this culture, a cripple, of course, was considered worthless and, and not much worth anything. But David brings him into the palace. David treats him like a son. David is, is just showing him grace and mercy. And David, of course, has received incredible mercy, incredible grace from God, and he just wants to share that with other people. And that's what the gospel does to us. When we realize how much God loves us and how much God has forgiven us and how much God has done for us, we want to be generous with our love and our grace and our mercy uh, as well. And so the love that God, David had received from God led him to show that love to others, even other people that were considered his enemy. Mephibosheth was considered the enemy of David, not because he hated David or he had an army against David, just because he's part of Saul's family, so they're natural enemies. But David realized that he was an enemy of God, but God showed him mercy, God showed him forgiveness, God showed him grace, so David wanted to show that to someone else. Today, we're taking a sharp turn in David's life. Uh, there are two things most people think of when you say David and, and it's David and... Goliath and David and Bathsheba. Uh, we're looking at David's biggest sin, his biggest mistake. And I hate calling it a mistake, but it's one of the things that he is most well known for. So let's start looking in verse number, uh, chapter 11, verse number 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab, his servant, uh, his servants and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Amnon and besieged Rabbith. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Israel is at war. Israel, and, you know, it seems kind of weird when it's like, you know, in the times when kings go to battle, it's like it's football season. And, you know, the first, every, every week they have a different battle with a different, you know, to see who's going to be the champion of the world. 
it, during this time, you, you didn't you didn't battle during certain times of the year, either for weather purposes, you know, winter you couldn't do it because it was too rainy, too muddy, so armies couldn't do anything. So you kind of took a vacation during wintertime, uh, and then when summer kicked back in, when spring started, then you'd go back to war. And so Israel, the weather's cleared out now so they can go back to war and start, you know, uh, kicking the enemies of God out. And so Israel goes to war, and David is supposed to go with them. Yes, he's the king, but he's also the leader of the army. And I know, like, to, our president is the commander-in-chief, but none of us expect him to, to put on some fatigues, grab an M16, and go into battle. Uh, that's not what's expected of the commander-in-chief now. But in this time, David, as the king, as the leader of the army, was expected to go his army into battle. But David's not doing that. David's at home. Uh, he, he's not leading the army like he's supposed to. Uh, then look at verse number 2. And it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman, woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look David's sin here. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And now he's, he's forsaken his duties, uh, doing what he's supposed to be doing. And now he's a, he's a peeping Tom. And the Bible says this, you know, it doesn't say she's a beautiful woman. She is a very beautiful woman. Now, I've ever heard a lot of sermons by a lot of people who try to put some blame on Bathsheba. I'm not doing that. Uh, I've, I've struggled, and I talked to April about this this week. I've really, this sermon, this message, this passage has kind of bothered me because I feel like Bathsheba's story has not really been told. And uh, I'm kind of going to tell Bathsheba's story. Uh, I think she deserves to have it told. Uh, I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to give her a hug. Uh, her and Tamar, because they both, the, the second Tamar, the first one, uh, she's kind of rough. Uh, but, you know, they, they deserve to have their stories told. And so I, I think we're going to, well, I'm going to spend some time, and I've struggled with this. I've struggled with Dave. I've struggled with Joab. Man, I'm mad at Joab, and we'll show you why I'm mad at Joab later. Uh, but David now, he's, he sees this beautiful woman. He's on the roof walking. We don't know why he's on the roof. We don't know if this comment, but he's on the roof. He's walking, and he sees this beautiful woman. Now, okay, he's not where he's supposed to be. That's wrong. He sees this beautiful woman, and he looks at her. And look, I, I, I get it. Uh, you know, you, 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 we're all human here. We're all, you know, people. You see someone attractive walk by, you, they catch your eye. You look at them. I heard one, uh, one, one uh, person say, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with having a bird fly over your head, but don't let it build a nest in your hair. You know, you see a pretty woman, you see a handsome guy, and you're like, oh, okay, and then just look away. David, oh, oh but David didn't look away. Uh, David kept looking, and it goes a little further. Look at verse 3. Um... And David sent and inquired, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, first of all, there's nothing wrong with what he did. He saw a beautiful woman. He's the king. There are certain privileges allotted to the king. So he sees this beautiful woman. He goes, Hey, I saw this, this, this really beautiful woman. She was over here. Go find out who she is. So there's nothing wrong with what he's done so far. But then the word comes back, and he is told that she is married. Oh, that girl you were asking about, she's married to Uriah. Now, not only is she married, but she is married to one of his best soldiers. 
Uriah, we're going to get into what that means a little bit. But not only is he one of David's best soldiers, but he's also the son of one of David's commanding generals. So David should know who this woman is. If he doesn't know who the woman is, he knows who her family is. He knows who her husband is. He knows who her daddy is. He knows who her father-in-law is. He knows that she may be beautiful, but she's married. That should be the end of it. Saw this gorgeous woman. Asked about her, but she's taken. Oh well, move on. It's not the end of it. Look at verse 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. Now, that's dead. Sometimes we gloss over this. This is David committing adultery with Bathsheba. This is not adultery. This is not what happened. He took her. When you look in the Hebrew, it is forcibly. David used his authority, used his position to have this woman who he knew was married to someone, someone he knew, someone he had fought, someone that he trusted. She was forcibly brought to him. And then, of course, the language after that kind of makes it seem like it was mutual. She came in unto him. He lay with her. It sounds like she was just as much to blame as he was. But she was not. Bathsheba was the guilty party. This is not an affair. This is sexual assault. That's what David did here. He didn't cheat on his wife, or have Bathsheba cheat on him. He didn't seduce her. He didn't convince her. He made her. He forces himself on her. Now look, it's not, we're going to get into what, if it's rape or not, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But David's the only guilty party, so he forces his woman on, himself on this woman. Then verse 5. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said unto Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So David's sin has caused some problems. As sin will always do. He is not where he should be. He's looking. He brings her in and, and forces himself on her. She gets pregnant, and now he's got to try to cover the problem. He has Joab, who's the commander of the army, send Uriah to him just to chat. Which, Joab, here's why i got some issues with Joab. Joab must have known something's wrong here. Why would he have me send Uriah? Yeah, Uriah's a good soldier, but he's just a soldier. He's not a, he's not a messenger. He's not a commander. He has no idea what's going on. So, but okay, I'll send Uriah to David. And so he sends Uriah to David, and David just kind of chit-chats with, hey, Uriah, how's the war going? How's, you kill anybody lately? Having a good... Great. Why don't you go home, spend some family time with your family, with your wife? And again, we don't know if Bathsheba and Uriah had any kids at this time. have no idea. Culturally speaking, they probably did. Because obviously fertile. So they probably had children. Today, go home, spend some time with your family, spend some time with your wife, 
Just enjoy yourself and you can go back tomorrow. David's expecting Uriah to do what comes naturally to a guy who's been at war for who knows how long and goes to see his wife. So he was like, problem solved. Everything's going to be taken care of. So he sends him home, expecting his wife. Then look at verse number 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. Now that's not what David's expecting. Again, Uriah's been at war. He should go home. He should want to go and see his wife and see his family and see what's going on. But he doesn't. He stays and he sleeps at the palace. And David finds out about this. Look at verse 10. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down to thy house? asked Uriah, why didn't you go home last night? And it's a legitimate question. Even if he's not trying to manipulate the situation to cover his sin, he's like, you slept in a doorway. You've got a bed at home. Why did, you, why did you sleep on the floor when you got... Even if your wife's not in the bed, you've got a bed at home. Why are you sleeping on the floor of my palace? Go home and get some sleep. Uh, and Uriah said unto David, The ark in Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? not do this thing. Uriah is very loyal. He says, man, my, my buddies don't get to go home and spend the night with their wife. Why, why would I? It's not fair. When they come home, I'll go home. When the I'm not going to give in to the pleasures of the flesh, even though they are right for him to have. I'm not going to do this because the rest of the army is at battle, at war. They can't come home, so it's not right. He feels guilty enjoying family time when his buddies aren't. So look at verse number 13, uh, 12. <clears throat> and David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and tomorrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. Uh, and he, at even, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. So David, he, he's got a second, another plan. I'm going to get him drunk. To lose their loyalty really quick, they tend to lose their their morals and their you know when you're when you're stone cold sober I can't go home and spend time with my wife because my friends aren't when you're drunk you're like what friends who cares but now whether whether Uriah still had morals when he's drunk or still had loyalty when he's drunk or he just got too drunk and passed out he doesn't go home and David finds out what happened here um, so he. Uh, 14. <clears throat> and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. Now David can't try a third time to get Uriah to go home and spend time with him. That's weird. Why are, you, why are you so focused on my relationship with Bathsheba, David? What's going on here? It's a little weird that you're so nosy in you know, me and my wife's relationship. So he can't, he can't do it a third time. So he's, he's still concerned uh, about what's going to happen. So he writes a letter to Joab. says, Joab, send this. You know, he, and he sends it with Uriah. Now, it's obviously sealed because Uriah didn't read it, but he says, Joab, 
whenever the battle's going hot, I want you to put Uriah right in the middle of it and then pull back so he gets killed. Again, this is how I know Joab knew something was going on. Why would David go to so much effort to kill one guy? That he could just easily, if David, if he'd done something wrong, David executed. But he's concocting this plan, this scheme to hide what he's done. So Joab, he, he tells Joab, put, put your eye in the hottest battle and have him killed. Then skip down to verse number 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and made an end of and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and say he say unto thee, Wherefore approachest uh, ye so nigh to the city, when ye did shoot from the wall, who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerushabesh, did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall, that he died from Thebes? Why went ye nigh unto the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So Joab puts this plan into motion, and it is a military blunder. He has everyone, he has his one, one, one battalion, one platoon, go way up close to the wall where they shouldn't be, and they're, they're shooting from the wall, and people are dying. And it is, when you look at it and you hear how it's done, they, jo, Joab knows this is, militarily speaking, this is stupid. And David knows whatever happens in this battle, it's, it's a dumb mistake. And so he thinks, David's going to get mad that I made such a huge blunder and had so many men killed. But when David gets mad, he tells his messenger, when David gets mad and starts yelling, why did you do, why did Joab do that? Why Let's remind him, you wanted Uriah dead, and Uriah's dead. Joab's covering his own backside now. So he, he's, he's, he's reminding David that because I, I was doing what you asked. Asked Joab to be careless just to kill one guy. Look at verse 22. So the messenger and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them. Uh, even unto the entering of the gate, and the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not, not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Now there's a, there's a lot going on here, and none of it is good. None of it is 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 a God. Joab didn't question why is David going to so much effort to have one guy killed, and he probably should have. And again, I get we're like you know we look at the culture and say, oh well, the culture of the time you didn't question the king. The culture in 1940s Germany was to kill Jews. We still don't say that's okay, do we? No. The culture at the beginning of the uh, 1865 was to have people as property. But we don't say, oh, that's a culture, it's okay. No. Joab should have stood up. And we see people in the Bible standing up to the authority and God blesses them for it. But Joab, he knew something was going on, but he, he doesn't do anything. Uh, doing something he shouldn't have, but he watches out for his king. 
he's protecting his buddy. Not only that, but David's protecting Joab too. David sends a messenger back saying, Look, Joab, people are going to criticize you for this, but I got your back. I'll watch out for you because you did what I asked you to do. And, And it wasn't just Uriah that died. A lot of good men were killed in this battle just so Uriah would die in battle. He was him for doing what David asked. And you know, sadly, we see this in a lot of cases of, of assault and sexual assault where powerful men cover up for each other. See it in churches, see it in, in companies, see it in government where just they're covering for each other. And it's, it's, it, 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 uh, it infuriated me this week. I got mad this week. It was like, I hate Joab. Joab, I don't, uh, I don't like him. But it's 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house like a, like a piece of property. Name his wife, and she bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The mourning period for Jews in this time was 30 days minimum. You could mourn for longer. And if your husband died, I think you would mourn for longer. But David doesn't allow this to happen. And here, here again, we, we kind of think, oh, well, Bathsheba, she just kind of put on a show. No, 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 no. She's the victim here. We're going to put ourselves in her position a bit. It's a terrible place to be. But from the outside, it looks like David's taking care of one of his best soldier's family because he died in battle. He got care of, you know, Bathsheba knows what's going on. And so David thinks, man, I got it under control. It's all hidden. Nobody knows. But the divert chapter ends with us telling us someone else does know. And they're not happy about it. God knew. And the thing displeased the Lord. Remember who we're talking about here. David is the man after God's own heart. David shepherd songwriter who wrote so many psalms that is the giant killer. David is the one who brought military glory and, and brought Israel back to work. when he's, he's on the run from Saul and Saul's trying to kill him and he has an opportunity to defend himself. He says, I'm going to trust God to take care of it. I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. God's the one that God who's spoken about God. Man, that, that Christianity has fallen so far. He sexually assaults one of his most loyal soldiers' wife, gets her pregnant, kills that guy, along with thousands of other men to come. Samuel 23 tells us Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor. This is an elite group of warriors. They had been with David from the very beginning. While he's running from Saul, they fought with him. Uriah believed in David when no one else did. Uriah, when he follows David, these mighty men, they are... 
Israel and they are becoming traitors to Saul. They are putting themselves in mortal danger. Uriah willingly did that because he believed in David. He fought by David. He fought David. And David abuses his wife. And David has him killed to cover it up. Not only Uriah, but a whole squadron. No one would have expected this from David. So how did it happen? First thing we're going to look at, we're going to number one, the majesty, the nature of David's sin. The nature of David's sin. How did David get into the situation? Well, the first thing we see is in verse number one. Let's look again at chapter 11. Verse number one, and it came to pass... After the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Amnon and besieged Rabbath, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. First thing we notice about David's sin was David was disengaged from the battle. For the first time in his life, David is not leading God's people into battle. Remember, David's the one who as a young child, a young teenage boy, rushed by himself with just a sling and five stones in the battle against a well-trained giant. But now he's hanging out at home. Now he's relaxing. He's sending the army away to fight. Has become the relaxer, and that sets him up for sin. When you are not engaged in the battle God has given you, you are vulnerable to temptations. Now look, this applies to everyone, but right now I want to pick on the men a little bit. Guys, God, and I know some of you are older, some of you are younger, some of you are whatever, applies to all of you. If you're married, going to be married one day, God has called you to lead your family in spiritual battle today. He has called you to be the spiritual leader of your family. God your family. God's called you to serve him and lead your family to leave that battle. You cannot leave it up to someone else. You cannot leave it up. And look, I'm not again, I'm not trying to I'm, I'm, I'm defending Beth Sheba here, so I'm not picking on women here. You can't leave it up to your wife. She needs to be a part of it. She's part of it. You're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to be the one that tells your family on Sunday morning, we're going to church because that's what we do. We're reading our Bible. We're not watching that because we don't do that. Even God, you should be, your wife shouldn't have to kick you out of bed and say, hey, you get out. Tell her she's got to skip her Dunkin' Donuts or her Starb. No, don't do that. She'll kill you. Uh, but you are called to lead your family. When you leave the open yourself up to temptation from the enemy. And when you do that, you'll be tempted in ways to do things that you never imagined you would do. You think in chapter 10, when David's loving on Mephibosheth, he, think, he thinks for a second, one day I'm going to rape a woman, kill her husband, and nobody's going to know. He never thought that. 
but he, got, he disengaged from the battle. All the energy that you should be giving to walking with God and leading your family to serve God is going to be given to something else. And when that happens, you're going to be easily tempted. But when you're engaged in the battle, when you're looking out for the attacks of the enemy, you won't be tempted so easily. The reason so many people end up in terrible sin, like David's, isn't because of a lustful body. I don't care how attractive David didn't sin because she was a hottie. He didn't sin because of a lustful body. He sinned because of an empty soul. He wasn't doing what God had called him to do. He stepped I told him to. Second reason David sinned was not only did he he wasn't engaged in battle, but David put himself in a place where he could be tempted. He's walking on the roof. Again, I don't know why. I've, I've, I studied the Bible to find out why is David on the roof. There's no logical reason. There's no historical commentary that tells you, you know, during this time the king would walk on the roof. No, he's, just, he's on the roof. Maybe he's bored. Maybe he can't sleep. We don't know what he's doing, but this is the Old Testament version of sitting in his room, browsing the internet on his phone. Just clicking, checking out TikToks or top ticks or whatever. Look, I watch TikTok on Instagram like an adult, so I don't know what y'all watch it on. But he's, he's just clicking through some things, clicking through some pages, and a pop-up comes up, or something sparks his interest, and he's down a rabbit hole, going towards sin. That's what David's doing here. He's alone in his room, clicking through page after page until a pop-up gets his attention. Here's the thing. Sexual sin is not something you fall into. I hate when people say that. Oh, he fell into sin. No, he didn't. He's just walking down the street, obeying God, serving God, and oops, look, I knocked happened. He didn't just fall into sin. It's something that you willingly give into. And it may start out innocently. Just reconnecting with that, that old boyfriend or old girlfriend on Facebook. We're just chatting. Just catching up, seeing how each other's doing. Start ends up in, in sin. Maybe it's just showing up at the same place at the same time. Maybe some of you, get, some of you parents who pick up people, that's, I'm going to show up at the, the school pickup line at the same time, at the same place so I can see that mom or I can see that dad. Because we just we connect. He gets me. She gets me. We can talk. It's, it's, it's easy. It's allowing yourself to be tempted. You have to be tempted, and before, before long, you're going to end up in sin. Here's the thing. Before you actually sin, you know where you're headed. You know where you're going. You've ignored, maybe you ignored the first signs of danger, but by the t before you get into deep sin, you know where you're going. You know, we use passive terms to describe how we end up in sin. Oh, I was tempted. I got carried away. I just, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You put yourself in that situation. You allowed yourself to be tempted. Now, here's the thing. It's easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. Hear that again. It is easier to avoid temptation than to resist temptation. Right. 
is easier to avoid temptation than to resist avoid being tempted at every aspect. And look, the Bible tells us this. Paul flee fornication. You know what that word flee in the Hebrew means? It means run. Paul doesn't say, you know, try to resist fornication. Try to, you know, try to, you know, if you can, just avoid as much. No, Paul says run from it. From idolatry. So, youthful lusts. Not back away slowly. You're like, I'm just going to, I'll be okay. It's not a bear you're trying not to startle. Run like your life depends on it from temptation because here's the thing. It does. Your life depends on it. You know, years ago, and look, our world will make fun of you. Remember years ago, Mike Pence got ridiculed because he said he wouldn't be alone in a room with a woman who's not his wife? People mocked him. I thought, man, that, that's the exact... If you're not my wife and you're alone in this building, I'm locked in my office, don't come... Several years ago, we were at New Horizon. I, had a, I was doing premarital counseling for a couple. And they were supposed to come to our house to do a, a counseling session. And no one was there. April was gone with the kids. I don't know what they were doing. I, I don't know. Partying. I don't care. But they were gone. So I coming over. Well, he was running late. She shows up by herself, comes in, comes downstairs into my office. You know what I did? I went out into the, into the driveway. Like, we're going to talk here until your fiancé shows up. Why? Because I'm afraid I think I can do this. I don't want to even be tempted by it. If I'm not tempted, I'm not tempted. of situation where you are asking for off the back. You can't have internet. Maybe you need internet accountability. And look, we focus on guys with this, but studies have shown that 63% of women study with, study, struggle with pornography as well. So it, we all need accountability. We all spouse and your parents should have complete and total app on my phone. There is no message on my phone April can't have access to. She can read my Instagram messages, which are always to my sister about cat videos. Uh, she can read Facebook messages. She can read my text. Anything she wants to read. My phone is completely open to her, and hers is open to me. What? Completely. But I'm not going to allow, and I don't want her, I don't want to allow anything in my life. And if, if, if I ever start hiding something from her, I hope she brings me before the church and says, y'all need to fire this guy. Because he's, he's doing something he ought not do. <clears throat> now, maybe I'm hiding the message for your birthday. You don't know that. But if I am, she better bring me, bring me up. See, don't, don't ever allow it. Same with my kids. My kids, they have no privacy. Well, they need their privacy. Not on my phone, they don't. I pay that phone bill. I pay Wi-Fi. Privacy there. When they want privacy, they can get out of my house. They can and but leave their phone because again, it's my phone. I pay for it. So give me my so, uh, life three sixty. Is or at least every every phone of my family is at all times. 
There's no secrets. And it's not because I don't trust them, I don't trust the kids, but it's not because I don't trust them or I don't, you know, I don't think they trust anything to grow in secret. Light is a great disinfectant. If there's nothing to hide, there's nothing to hide. You start hiding stuff, something's going on. So we see that David put himself where he could be tempted. The third thing we know about David's sin is David objected. She wasn't a person for him. She was an object. Look at verse 3 again. David sent and inquired after the woman. And he, one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, why record it this way? God is reminding David, God is reminding us, that Bathsheba is more than just a very beautiful woman. She's someone's wife. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's sister. She's probably someone's mom. She loves someone and is loved by them for more than just being very beautiful. David doesn't think about that. To him, she's just an object to satisfy his lustful desires. Here's the thing. The worst sins in human history always happen when we stop seeing people as people. You think the Holocaust happened because Hitler and the Nazis thought the Jews were great people with dreams and wishes and hopes. No, they thought they were subhuman. You think the slave trade happened because they, people thought that people from the continent of Africa were, were great people with dreams less than human to them. Same thing with the They think they're, they're men and women who have these great potential in life. They satisfy other people. Here's the thing. Same thing with sexual sin. When you are looking at a girl or a woman online, the woman you're lusting after, the woman you're degrading, she's someone's daughter. She's someone's sister. She's so, she may be someone's mom or someone's wife, and if she's not yet, she hopes to be one day. She has and plans that have nothing to do with you using her as an object for your pleasure. The guy that you're flirting with on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever it is now, he's someone's husband. He's some little girl's daddy. But you don't care about that. He's just there for your, your, to stoke your ego. David's sin began with pornography. He saw this woman and he objected her as an object instead of looking at her as a person. And that led to destruction. Here's the fourth thing we notice. Number four, David abused his power. Now David was able to rape this woman and get away with it because he's the king. And look, I know rape is a strong word, and there is a word in Hebrew to describe rape that we're going to see in a couple weeks because David's chickens come home to roost because of what he did, and that word's not used here. David didn't rape her in the way that we think of forced rape, but how much consent do you think Bathsheba had? He's a king. You do what the king says. You suck it up and you do it because the king's asked you to. So if he demands our culture 
there are constantly people who are using their power to exploit other people. We're to be different. We're to use any authority and any power we have to protect other people. When someone of God sees it and God He saw him. Now he does for Bathsheba and for David's sin and all lives. David's sin, he destroyed Uriah and Bathsheba's home. I, fe- I can't imagine how guilty Bathsheba had felt. And she didn't do anything wrong. But she knows Uriah was killed to cover up David's sin. Then she's, got a, she's forced to marry David. Has this child with him, but this child dies because of David's sin. Now, historically, historical documents in the Bible show us from this point on, after chapter 13, Bathsheba becomes David's primary wife. But there's no evidence in any Bible or any writing that Bathsheba truly fell in love with David. Or David truly fell in love. I think David treated her best out of guilt. And I think she was just, she stuck. I, I can't imagine what she has gone through. David's family after this takes a dark turn. His life, his family, his kingdom starts to unravel. He has one of his sons rapes his sister and then another David doesn't do anything and then the son that killed the rapist son rings a rebellion against David, chases David out of Jerusalem, ends up sleeping with all of David's wives and then is killed in battle. All comes down to this moment where David allowed sin to destroy his family. Here's the thing. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. Now, I'm not trying to shame anyone because you're maybe sitting here and thinking, man, he's really pounding on my sin. I'm not trying to. I was pounding on mine this week as well. We're, we're getting to the hope, and it's going to come next week. This week, it's bad. But we're going to see some hope. Despite David's horrible actions here, his horrible sins here, it is after this he's called a man after God's own heart. It is after this that the Messiah who would save humanity from their sin comes through David's line. God does bring beauty out of ashes. But even with forgiveness, sin is still devastating. You can get forgiveness from God, but you cannot unsin. You cannot set the clock back. And sin will leave destruction that can take a lifetime to heal. So here's the thing. If you're on the brink of sin, flee. Run from it. If you're even on the brink of being tempted, flee the temptation. You cannot resist it. Get away from it. Or maybe you're like, I've already, I'm in too deep. What am I going to do? Confess your sin, forsake your sin, and, and deal with the consequences. Every attempt, here's the thing, don't try to make it better. Every 
sin made it worse and worse and worse and worse. You cannot sin sin with more sin. Confess your sin, forsake it, and run from it. That's the hard part. Now, second thing I want to look at, let's look at the hope in the story. David is the long-anticipated king of Israel. He's a giant killer. He showed incredible faith in God, but he sinned incredibly. If a man after God's own heart could sin so badly, what hope do we have? And here's the thing. That's the right question to ask. This whole series is meant to show us one powerful truth. David was a great king. To David. But David's not the king we need. He points us to the king we need, but we need a greater king. We need a king that's more faithful. That has every earthly thing you put your trust in will fail you. Every person, every object, everything is going to fail you. We need a greater king than David, and we have it through Jesus. Now in the stories, I always want to show you who we are and who Jesus is. We're David in a story. I'm not going to focus on that because that's bad. We're David. We're the guy who, who just... Who's Jesus? Jesus is Uriah. Uriah was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just faithful to David. He just trusted David. He, he's loyal. He's got integrity. He's self with his wife because his fellow soldiers are in harm's way. When he's told to charge into death, he didn't willingly. And he didn't sin. That's Jesus. Jesus willingly left heaven to come to us. Forsook the pleasures of heaven to come to us to live a perfect sinless life. He willingly charged towards Calvary to die for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God for my sins and for your sins, and He willingly did. He was is a picture of the steadfast love of God. A love David sinned, and there would be consequences for that, but the steadfast love of God would never leave him. God would ultimately die for David. He saw what David did. It displeased him greatly. But when David confessed and forsake it, God gave him forgiveness. God sent the Messiah through David's life to die on a cross for David's sin, to rise again three days later to redeem David to God the Father, because God is the king we truly need. Now, there are differences between Uriah and Jesus. Uriah, he died not knowing David betrayed him. Jesus knew he betrayed him. Jesus knew we were his enemy. He knew we were going to reject him and spit on him. He wasn't ignorant to what was happening. He eagerly went to the cross to pay for our sins, sins we committed against him. Also, once Uriah died, 
Uriah stayed dead because Uriah is a man. Jesus died, but three days later rose again because Jesus is God. Jesus is the righteous king that we're looking for. Jesus tells us how we can overcome sin. Here's the thing. The only way to truly overcome sin is to be captivated by Jesus' beauty and not the beauty of the temptation the world gives us. David sinned because his soul was bored and hungry and he fed it with the wrong things. When your heart is empty, you're going to crave sinful desires to fill it. The only way to escape those temptations is to fill your soul with the love of the kings. See, David's problem wasn't his desire for sex was too strong. His problem was his desire for God was too weak. What motivates you to live a life devoted to God instead of a life devoted to sin? 1 John 3 tells us, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. See, as His children, we have inside of us a desire to be like Him. The Spirit of God works inside of us to conform. But we also have inside of us the old flesh that wants to please ourselves, that wants to live for self, that wants to live for its own sinful desires. If you live for yourself, then you're going to love yourself and you're going to sin like David sinned. Maybe not exactly the same, but you're going to sin and that sin is going to lead to destruction. If you put yourself in a place where you can be tempted, if you put yourself in a place where you can objectify position, where you can abuse your power, you're going to. You will sin. We have to love God, whether we love ourselves. Be with God, flee temptation, and run to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.